Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists. So I just got a drill and was ready to drill a hole. And he walked into the lab right then. He saw what I was doing and he said, you probably better measure that and make sure that you don't hit one of the Freon tubes. And I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, what would be the probability of setting the Freon tubes? The coils were that far apart. And I thought, well, I can see well enough to know where that bit is going to go. And so I went ahead and drilled through the thing and I hit dead on into one of the Freon tubes and all the refrigerant came shooting out of the thing. That was the hardest thing that I ever did in my life, to walk into his office and tell him that I had drilled a hole into the Freon tube. That's just a small taste of what we have in store for you today. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, solutions to research issues, and tools to better understand the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Stay current on applied environmental research, measurement methods, and more. Thanks for joining us. Today's guests are Ed Switek, micrometeorologist and application engineer at Campbell Scientific, and Dr. Galen Campbell, founder and soil physicist at Meter Group. Ed and Galen, thanks for joining us today. We really do appreciate you being here with us. Today, we wanted to talk to you about your association with some of the founders and pioneers of environmental biophysics and environmental measurement, starting with Dr. Sterling Taylor, who was a researcher at Utah State University in the 1950s and 60s. And I know that you worked with him, Galen, and so can you just give us a brief introduction into who he was and why he is considered one of the founders of environmental biophysics? Sterling was a part of that. I guess you could say cohort that we call the greatest generation, the the ones who grew up during the Depression and fought in the Second World War and then went on after that and changed the world. And uh, there were a number of amazing soil physicists that that I was acquainted with in that group, and Sterling was one of those. He grew up on a farm during the depression. He got his bachelor's degree at Utah State University, went through ROTC and was commissioned officer in the Army, served throughout through World War II, got his PhD at Cornell, and then was hired back at Utah State uh, as their soil physicist. What made him one of the founders of environmental biophysics? When he was doing his work, environmental physics or environmental biophysics weren't really uh, around. Those weren't things that were talked about, but they did talk about the soil plant atmosphere continuum. Nowadays, when you go into a field, you try to narrow down as much as you can so that you can make a, a splash. But those scientists didn't. They broadened out. And they said, we need to look at the soil plant atmosphere continuum all at once. And so they worked on plant physiology and micrometeorology and soil physics and all of the areas that, that fit together for that and became pioneers in, in all of those areas that, that eventually did become what we call environmental physics now. So Galen, what was your association with Sterling Taylor? How did he influence your life and your work in science? <laughs> 
he was like a second father to me. He influenced probably essentially everything been with me throughout my life. I met him when I was a freshman in college. I was studying physics, but the physics curriculum had space in it for taking other things, and I grew up on a farm. And so spring quarter of that year, I decided I wanted to, to take a soils class. And so I signed up for beginning soils. And it turned out that Sterling taught it that year. I think that's the only time he ever taught beginning soils. But he was the teacher, and it was an amazing class. And at the end of the class, he came to me and said, I'd like you to work in my lab. And I said, well, I can't. Uh, we have farm work to do, and I'm needed there. But the next fall, when I came back to school, he, we met. We were just downtown Logan together and, and met, and he uh, stopped to talk to me, and he said, said, I still would like you to come work for me. And I said, well, uh, we're still trying to get fall work finished up, but when that's over with, I'll come in. And so I went in and he put me to work in his lab. And the things that he had me do there, uh, measuring electrical conductivity in soil, measuring water potential, measuring plant water potentials, meteorological things, radiation and wind and all of those things, the things that I have spent my whole career working on were all things that he started me on there. And I've often thought if there had never been a Sterling Taylor, there wouldn't be any Campbell Scientific, there wouldn't be any meter group, there wouldn't be any Juniper systems, all of those things grew out of the work that we did in his laboratory. Galen, you had mentioned that uh, if there was no Sterling Taylor, there, there wouldn't be a Campbell Scientific or a, a Decagon or, or a meter group. I, I've often contemplated over my life how different individual events sort of changed where I ended up, but I never really contemplated how events or people who were removed from me once or twice have also influenced my life. So in a way, your interaction with, uh, with Dr. Taylor influenced me as well, insofar that if it didn't happen, if it didn't take you on as a student to work in his lab, there would be no Campbell Scientific and there would be no Ed Switek working for Campbell Scientific. Are there any other contributions? You talked about how he really influenced you know, the, the work that we're doing here today. Are there any contributions to the field or, or multiple fields that were going on in his day where he kind of expanded our knowledge in environmental sciences? He started out his career using water potential to determine when crops should be irrigated and worked out the best scheme for managing water on crops that has been worked out ever. We've tried to get that implemented for the past 70 years, and I think we're making some progress now. Uh, but it's amazing that something that good, I mean, we still go back to the tables and figures and, and work that Sterling did to guide us in that. But that was where his, his research started, was using water potential for irrigation management. And then he went on working on link transport of heat and water 
in soil, and this may be an area that people aren't all that familiar with, but if you bury an electrical cable in the soil that you run current through and it heats the cable up, that'll drive the water away from the cable and dry the soil around the cable. And when it does that, then the cable will heat up even more and you can have a runaway situation where where the cable melts even. Well, he studied that, uh, did some of the early work on that, and, and he decided he needed better theory to go with that. And so he got into non-equilibrium thermodynamics, which is a field that still people are making. I mean, the Nobel Prize several years ago was awarded in that area, and he worked with some of the best scientists there were, did a sabbatical in Belgium to try to learn more about that. And so you can see that his work spanned from the the most practical things of growing better crops to some of the most theoretical things that people have worked on. That's amazing. Do you have any other fun stories about Sterling Taylor that might help us get to know him better? (laughs) I have a a very embarrassing story. I think it, it illustrates his patience. I was not the only person to be influenced the way I just described. There were a lot of young men that he worked with and brought along, and not all of them went into soil physics, but but a lot of them did go into science. This this has to be one of my most embarrassing situations. One of the jobs that he gave me there was to work on thermocouple psychrometry, and that was the thing that produced Decagon in the beginning. That, that eventually turned into meter. In those days, we had to have a constant temperature bath that would control to a thousandth of a degree. And we didn't have a lot of money to put into lab equipment. And so Sterling had built a constant temperature bath out of an old washing machine. And they had done just a beautiful job and insulated the surroundings. And they had put a propeller on in place of the washing machine agitator. I mean, this is the old style washing machine, not the new ones that you have now. And he had built this copper core in there and wrapped copper tubing around it so that he could refrigerate it, control the refrigeration. So it was just a beautiful instrument. And that was the piece of equipment I was using in these things that I was trying to do. And I was I don't remember exactly when that happened, probably when I was a a sophomore in college. But I, you know, I'd grown up on the farm. I was pretty confident in myself. And I wanted to install some stuff on that drum. And so I needed to drill some holes through it to mount some things. And so I just got a drill and was ready to drill a hole. And he walked into the lab right then. He saw what I was doing, and he said, you probably better measure that and make sure that you don't hit one of the Freon tubes. And I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, what would be the probability of setting the Freon tubes? The coils were that far apart. And I thought, well, I can see well enough to know where that bit is going to go. And so I went ahead and drilled through the thing, and I hit dead on into one of the Freon tubes and all the refrigerant came shooting out of the thing. 
that was the hardest thing that I ever did in my life, to walk into his office and tell him that I had drilled a hole in the, the Freon tube. And, I mean, what he should have done was balked my ears or sworn at me at least. But this such a kind and uh, patient man, and he said, well, we're going to have to patch that up and recharge it, aren't we? <laughs> Sounds like you got off pretty easy with that. Or not so easily because, you know, Galen was left to his own devices to punish himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more often than not, you're your worst critic and, and punisher. That's true. That's true. Now, his book called Physical Edaphology, published in 1972, provides many key insights on physics in irrigated agriculture. How could a deeper understanding of principles that come from that book in particular change our approach to watering today, you know, especially in this age of water scarcity? The way he did it, by measuring water potential in the soil, you can immediately know, no matter what the soil is, you'll know whether you're over-irrigating and running water out the bottom or under-irrigating and and reducing the production of the crop that you're doing. You can irrigate perfectly with that. People have tried now for 40 years or maybe more than that to measure the water content of the soil and, and do that. But while that's possible, it's not easy. And mostly you get it wrong. Where with water potential, you don't ever get it wrong. It'll be right every time. And so if we would just apply the things that he worked out, I mean, the the tables are in that book for doing the irrigation. He has plenty of theory in the book, but he also has those practical things. There was one other soil physics book when he published that one, but it, it had been published quite a few years earlier and a lot had changed. The, the reason that he that he wanted to publish a book was just to have something to teach out of. That book is unique. It's, it's one that every soil physicist should have a copy of. He did die pretty young, and that cut short a very promising career and decades probably ahead of him in research. What do you think we missed out on because he died so early? I've wondered about that too. One of the things that he was working on was a big experiment irrigating fruit crops. Uh, at the time of his death, he, he, he had gotten a big grant to, to do that and was working on some of the orchards down along the Wasatch Front. And that was, again, cutting-edge research that would have had a pretty big impact on things that we're still trying to get right applying the, the things that he had already uh, worked out for field crops. And then uh, I think probably his non-equilibrium thermodynamics would have made a bigger splash had he had more time to work on it. So you mentioned that there's still things that we're working on to get right. Are there things that stand out about Sterling Taylor that we could emulate to improve our own research in the field? I have transcripts from a number of the talks that were given at at Sterling's funeral. And uh, one of his colleagues in the soils department said something about that that I that I really liked. Wynne Thorne was was his colleague. He said, I wondered further why Sterling devoted himself to research 
and studies with such vigor. I concluded that he had, in common with a select body of great people, the trait of a never-ending feeling of curiosity. He saw in nature attributes and relationships that few other minds could see. He had the gift of curiosity, and that kept him in an almost perpetual state of excitement. He knew, as few people do, the deep personal satisfaction that comes from ideas and the discovery of new truth. And I thought if I would try to summarize the thing that that we could emulate in Sterling, it, well, there were a lot of wonderful things about him, but that was a fun thing in working with him, that he was just so excited all the time about discovering new truths. That's beautiful. So with that, let's move on to another pioneer in the world of environmental biophysics, and that is Dr. Champ Tanner. And I think it's you, Galen, who had an association with him. So can you tell us who was Champ Tanner? He was another of that greatest generation who came from southern Idaho, northern Utah. In the beginning, I think he did his undergraduate work at Brigham Young University and his professor there inspired him to, to go on for graduate work. But of course, that was in the middle of the Second World War. And so he went into the service uh, for the, the period of the war and then did his graduate work at University of Wisconsin. And then they hired him on the faculty there. He had polio during that time when he was in graduate school. He was pretty sure that that would prevent him from a, an academic career. And it, he was affected some by it, but his determination and the willingness of, of the University of Wisconsin to back him up and continue to support him through, through that time while he was recovering he wouldn't have left Wisconsin no matter what I think from, you know, he felt that committed to them from the commitment that they showed when he was struggling to get through uh, that difficult time in his life. And they were paid back many, many times over for that faith that they had in him. He established a program there that just, there just wasn't any other one like it in the world. The students that he trained there I have never known anyone train a group of students that are as competent and able as, as that group. They've gone on to make enormous contributions on their own. And he covered almost every area. He, uh, now it's really popular to do anti-covariance work, and that's what Ed his strength. And he works with a lot of people doing that. But Champ was doing that anti-covariant stuff back in the 60s and 70s before, back when we called it uh, anti-correlation even. And it's amazing to go back and look at those old papers and see all the things they tried. He worked in plant physiology, plant water relations, made some of the great contributions there. He worked on evaporation through mulches and did uh, great contributions there over a broad range of subjects, did amazing work. 
he was elected to the National Academy of Sciences, which is the highest honor that you can receive in the U.S. scientifically. And if I understand it right, he was the first soil scientist ever to be elected to that body. Soil microbiology, he made some pretty big contributions there to it. I think it actually was a soil microbiologist that elected him. So you just sit back and you wonder how could somebody accomplish that much in one career? And in terms of uh, commercializing that, I mean, Campbell Scientific and Meter Group wouldn't be there without Sterling, but Lycor wouldn't be there without Champ. So there's a number of companies that, that owe their existence to the work that these guys did. So what was your association with Champ Tanner, Galen? How did you get involved in working with him? I worked with a number of his students. And somehow through working with them, I got adopted into that family. And it was a kind of a family. The Tanners were, were just the most gracious people on the face of the earth. If you were the, in their circle, I, they took good care of you. The Tanner hospitality is beyond words for me. It just was amazing to be a part of that group, to know him that well. But once I had been sort of adopted in, I had a lot of interaction with him professionally. Do you have any other stories of his interactions with his own students? I spent almost 30 years on the faculty at Washington State University, so I had a lot of students of my own. So I had a lot of opportunity of for seeing students and, and professors and how they interact and, and what kind of students they produce. And Champ produced the, the best ones that I know of. He set the bar pretty high for them and they expected them to perform at a high level. His students talk about the soil seminars that they had there and the, the grilling that Champ would give them in the seminars. They knew they had to be prepared. They would talk about how important he felt like it was to take care of the equipment that they had. His lab was like Sterling's in that they built a lot of their stuff and that they didn't have a lot of money to spend on things like you do in labs nowadays. And so he wanted the tools taken care of. And they said that if somebody left a screwdriver out of place, didn't get it all the way back to the toolbox, the next morning when they came in, there would be the uh, screwdriver sitting on their desk with a note from Champ encouraging him to not do that ever again. And did that work? <laughs> I think it worked. I, I don't think they left stuff around more than once. What else then do you think that scientists today could learn from Champ Tanner? He was just determined to not kid himself or let his students kid themselves. When they got a piece of equipment to make a measurement, why they better understand everything about that piece of equipment and have checked all of the calibrations and made sure that all of it worked the way it was supposed to so that when they got data out of that, they knew that they could count on those data. And he was just always very rigorous in, in the way he pursued his research, the way he did the analysis, uh, the way he 
maintained the equipment and then checked to make sure that it was properly calibrated. You're just a very careful scientist. And so you could count on anything that he did. It was done correctly. I, I wonder if I could interject a story I heard um, secondhand um, about interacting with uh, Champ Tanner. So I, I heard this story from a colleague of mine at Campbell Scientific, Joel Green. And Galen, he was a master's student of yours. Is that correct? Right. So the, the, the story was about a student that Champ had by the name of Marcel Fuchs. You had mentioned the note the, that accompanied the screwdriver that wasn't put away. From what I had heard, it sounded like uh, Champ was famous about leaving notes for everybody, uh, not just you know, the student who left the, the screwdriver out, but notes on what to do for the next day and, and, and whatever. And uh, going through program with Champ, people, the students were, were tested and, and make sure that they understood everything. And then when they graduated, they were you know, top-end uh, sort of scientists. So this story is about Marcel coming back to the U.S. and actually staying at the Tanner home in Wisconsin as a guest. Uh, Marcel got up in the morning, went downstairs to the kitchen, and he saw a note. And, and in the version of the story I heard, it was a, a note on a yellow piece of paper written in red pen. And when he saw that note, his heart skipped a beat because he had a flashback to being back as a graduate student. And then he approached the countertop to read the note to see what Champ wanted him to do. And it was a note to Champ's wife, Kay. Started off with, Kay, I would like you to please, and then da da da, the assignment for the day or the request for the day. But what I found so endearing about that story was that while Champ had high expectations of his students, they were also part of the family. Yep. And he treated them the same as he did his family. Yep. That's great. And that actually segues into our next and final individual that we'd like to highlight. And that's Champ's son, Bert Tanner, who was a scientist at Campbell Scientific for many years. Can both of you, Ed and Galen, tell us a little bit about who Bert Tanner was? Bert did work in, I think, geophysics, and then he got a master's degree at Utah State in biometeorology, I think they called it. And then he went to work at, I think, at the, for the Forest Service, was in the Bay Area. But he wanted to get a PhD, and so he and I started corresponding. He was interested in coming to Washington State University to get a PhD. And we had everything worked out, and he was going to leave his employment there. And he and his wife, Cookie, were wanting to, to do some hiking in the Grand Canyon before they came out to Pullman. So they, they were hiking around and, and accidentally kicked over a coffee pot and scalded Cookie's uh, foot or leg. And so she had some pretty severe burns and they brought her out and took her up to the the burn unit, University of Utah. They have a good unit there that, that can take care of that. And while, while they were there, Bert called me to let me know what was going on. He was kind of at loose ends waiting for her to heal. And, and I said, well, if if you got a little bit of time, why don't you run up to Logan and visit with my brothers? Uh, they've just started a new business there. This was just a year or so after Campbell Scientific started. You might enjoy visiting with them. So Bert went up there and visited with my brothers. And the next thing I knew, he was calling up and saying, well, they offered me a job. And so I guess I'll stay here. 
And so he never did come for his PhD. He stayed uh, in Logan. It was an amazing help and example at Campbell Scientific for a lot of years. and had a huge impact on, on the whole direction that that went. That story that you told is almost verbatim to the version that I had heard that uh, that you know it was key that Cookie got burned and um, he had the visit to CSI. And then the little twist that I um, also got from Bert was that uh, because Cookie was injured, there was need for insurance and steady employment, and, and that probably weighed heavily uh, towards his. I'm sure he took that. This he agonized about the decision whether to go on to get a PhD or uh, work at CSI, but in the end. At the time, the, the practical matters of a stable income with insurance was was uh, really critical for them. Bert joined um, in the marketing department, and then um, a group from Campbell Scientific uh, left to form Omnidata. And so then there was a need for uh, some leadership in the marketing department. And then so Bert moved from the application engineer position into the vice president of marketing within Campbell Scientific. But he always enjoyed the application engineering type of work, specifically interacting with clients. And then at the time, that also was kind of hand in hand with being what we call now an application scientist. And so Bert was in the unique position that he was in upper management and he could steer and mold certainly the marketing department and probably to some extent the company to service uh, the scientific community. and. Um, I have a quick story to sort of drive home that point uh, how Bert was very interested in working with the scientific community. Campbell Scientific was invited to give a presentation and a little workshop to Brazil. This would have been probably in the early 2000s. I was preparing the, the lectures and the slides, and, and I guess I didn't really give it to Bert for review, or I did, and he just didn't have the time to take a look at it. And so we were in Brazil. My title page came up and I had what I thought was everyone's title on there. And after Bert's name, I had vice president of marketing. And then I went ahead and, and gave the presentation. Uh, then that evening, he kind of pulled me aside and he said, while I am the vice president of marketing this week, I'm a scientist. And that was sort of represented over and over as we got involved with uh, different individuals who needed instrumentation. and. The, the instrumentation that they needed was not necessarily something that we had as a standard product. There were bits and pieces that could be used in these systems. And then Bert took it upon himself and, and the company took it upon itself to work and develop new systems for our clients to meet, to meet their kind of measurement needs. So it, again, it ties back into this idea in Sterling's lab where you needed something and you went ahead and built it. Now it's a few years later and the scientific community would approach Bert and say, geez, this is what I really need to do. Can you help me in some fashion? He was more than willing to take on that challenge. When I joined Campbell Scientific, it was initially to work in the air quality market. It was a kind of a new market that the company wanted to develop. But I had done my graduate work making any covariance measurements at Utah State University. So I had experience with these type of systems and instrumentation. And while that wasn't my focus, it quickly changed to become my focus as the, the scientific community was approaching Bert and he wanted to build systems 
to meet these specific needs. And then I ended up, he ended up tapping me as a resource to help him do the, the programming within the data loggers. So that underlying theme was something that always drove Bert in terms of basically product development and R&D that was really housed in the marketing department rather than, say, in engineering. So the washing machine came up. I really enjoyed that story, Galen, because I could see myself in that same position saying, yeah, I know how to drill a hole without hitting a coil. When I started at CSI in 1992, one of the things that Bert did was kind of show me around the company. And he took me into production where we were building circuit boards. And there were two washing machines that were used to spin out the boards after they had been washed. They were genuine washing machines as opposed to some kind of high-end PCB type of device. It was just a washing machine. Like, wow, this is just wild. And then later on, I had heard a story about when Eric was a teenager. And I guess he always had a really curious mind. And one way to sort of tamp that down was to give him tasks that were a bit laborious. And he was assigned a task of reducing the weight of some sort of farming implement, probably a plow or something like that, basically drilling holes into it. And he was given a hand crank type of drill to drill these holes. And maybe he did one or two and then decided that there was a better way of doing it. And then he promptly took the motor out of his mother's washing machine and built himself a drill or maybe a drill press or something like that. So I, I can't, it's, it's interesting how the, the washing machine theme seems to be interwoven in this history. So another sort of a side story, you had talked about the, the quality of the students that came out of the Tanner lab. And Bert, he knew the first level of students that came out of his father's lab, uh, but then there was the second and third level. And when he would interact with these uh, students, he always kind of questioned them as to their lineage. After this, you know, the, the third or fourth time I saw him go through this kind of Q&A to see how, he, how this individual got back to Champ Tanner, then I told Bert you know, over dinner, I said, ah, so he has a Tanner number of three. And Bert looks at me and said, what? I said, he has a Tanner number of three. So there's you know, this individual, then his major professor who has a Tanner number of two, then the one before him, which is uh, you know, typically like George Thurtell or someone of that level had a Tanner number of one, and then naturally uh, Champ had a Tanner number of zero. <laughs> so Bert really got a kick out of that, that term. Although he worked in industry, he was well-respected, and he was even a fellow of the American Society of Agronomy. So what were his contributions to the field of environmental measurement? We might mention a few of the things that, that Bert brought in. The uh, trace gas analyzer that... Campbell Scientific has built for quite a while. That was a BERT project. He worked, I mean, it came from George Thurtell, but BERT knew about it and, and championed that and got it going. The uh, sonic anemometer, the Campbell Scientific CSAT 3 that we started out, I had built a little one-dimensional sonic on sabbatical years ago, and Campbell Scientific started building that but they really wanted a, a better thing. And so they hired Larry Jacobson, who built that CSAT 3, but that was all Bert Tanner. He was the one, the force behind it, the CO2 and water vapor analyzer. I can't remember what you call that. 
just a CO2 water gas analyzer. Yeah, so that that was again some of the stuff that Bert pushed through. So some of these tools that are absolutely essential to the you know Ameriflux and Euroflux and these huge programs and, and in China, those all came from Bert's push that he put behind getting a set of tools out that that could do that job properly. I mean, he was as demanding as his father was in terms of making solid measurements. With all of those instruments, they were really to service the scientific community. They were not bread and butter, if if you use that term. Uh, the, The sonic anemometer, for example, there were already at least two or three other vendors on the market that manufactured sonic anemometers, but Bert felt that we could build an instrument, do a better job with our design, make it more economical for the community, and integrate it much better with our data loggers. And so, like you said, Galen, he, he pushed and championed for that sort of product development. And then that held true with our gas analyzer as well. There was already a company on, that had a product uh, but he thought that we could do a better job integrating the gas measurements with the sonic measurements, and then that ultimately bore out um, the products that we have uh, for measuring CO2 and water vapor fluxes. So even though he didn't get a PhD, he should have been granted a, a DSC, a Doctor of Science degree. They do that in England. Once you've produced a body of scientific work that's worthy of a PhD or give you the DSC degree. And, and we should do that in this country too. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, for, for what it's worth, Bruce Bugby and Larry Hips at Utah State University championed to award Bert a, a, a PhD posthumously. And they, they were successful about two years after he passed away. And earlier, Ed, you talked about how Bert was really involved in helping his clients succeed. Can you add a little bit more about what he had done to influence or improve, you know, customer experience with Campbell Scientific? Actually, I can think of, um, well, there's, there's several cases, but two really pop to mind. This was uh, work that was done for a client in Korea by the name of Jun Kim. He was a student of Sashi Verma from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Jun was interested in making uh, methane fluxes over rice paddies. And so we ended up building and, and, and selling him the first installation was a was an anti-covariance uh, methane sensor. The second one was um, a gradient system to measure uh, methane fluxes along with uh, CO2 and water vapor. And then a few years later, Jun Kim was interested in making CO2 and water vapor measurements within a forest canopy to get at the storage term. We didn't have a system per se, uh, but Jun talked with uh, Bert for a little bit, or actually emailed back and forth a little bit with Bert. Um, uh, Bert talked with our engineering staff. We got a resource from engineering, and then he grabbed me, and we the engineering provided us with hardware, and I ended up doing the data logger programming. And then there was a trip to to Korea for a week for training and installation. One more, I think Galen had mentioned some you know work into into China, and this started in, in like January two thousand and two, where our representative interacting with the Chinese Ecological Research Network. And they were interested in closed path anti-covariance systems and also profiling systems. And at that time, people were building their own. There weren't really commercially available systems per se. There were the components, you know, gas analyzers, data loggers, pumps, and this kind of thing. But 
typically they put it together uh, like in the old days with Sterling Taylor. But in this case, the uh, our representative wanted some turnkey kind of systems. And so there was some initial negotiations and a quote that was probably done in February. And we submitted that to CERN, the Chinese Ecological Research Network. We weren't really expecting them to place the order, but they did. And then we had a ship date of something like November of 2002. And we got the order at the end of the spring. And then it was just, you know, all hands on deck in terms of taking the designs that were sketched out on the back of a, of a napkin and then turning them into real engineering drawings and then ultimately building systems with you know, hardware and then working out data logger programming and software and this kind of thing, shipping the equipment and then going to China for three weeks to do the installation and training. The following year, there was a follow-up um, enhancements to the systems, then another three-week training. But I, I think that was actually one of our first experience with a, a really large purchase of a, of a network kind of uh, hardware. And um, I, I heard this little comment from uh, Paul Campbell a couple of years ago, where after that sale was made, Paul had mentioned, you know, we should do more sales like that. And uh, currently, uh, as far as like a business model for Campbell Scientific, that's what we're shooting for now is facilitating equipment designs or, or system designs for large networks. I think I remember when that when that order hit, and you're right, that was all hands on deck. And, uh, Paul might have said, oh, we should do more of that, but the engineers would not have said that we should do more of that. It was an incredibly stressful time for everybody involved. Uh, David Little was our international sales manager at the time, and he was doing all the, um, uh, the quoting, um, you know, working with Bird, staying in the office till 10 or 11 o'clock uh, routinely. Uh, then when the order came in, then it switched where, you know, uh, we, we had our day jobs of supporting individual clients. And, and then usually around three o'clock, then we switched to the back of the building, back of building one and then work on uh, the China order until 11 or 12 o'clock at night. <laughs> Exciting times. And I just thought of something too. It's like, and, and really um, all the wives should get credit for the incredible patience that they exhibited during that period. <laughs> Definitely. They should be the ones getting overtime, right? And double pay and all that. Right. <laughs> okay. So final question regarding Bert Tanner. Is there anything in particular that you feel that we can learn from his work in life? Yeah, the, the one thing that I would say, and, and I've kind of instilled it in my own uh, work ethic, is just a real dedicated and unfettered devotion to the client and, and meeting their needs. You know, listening to them and not trying to sell them what we have, but listening to what they need and then adjusting our product line to meet their specific needs. I couldn't say it any better than that. That's perfect. And Eric worked for Sterling too, and that was. That was a really formative part of his training. So I'm not sure which, you know, whether Sterling's influence on him or on me that had the biggest effect on creating Campbell Scientific, but, but it all goes back to Sterling. Our time is up for today. Thank you again so much, Ed and Galen, for taking time to share your association with some pioneers in the field of environmental biophysics. And I think that our listeners will really find this episode inspiring. If you in the audience have any questions about this topic or want to hear more, feel free to contact us at metergroup.com. 
or reach out to us on Twitter at meter underscore ENV. Or you can connect with Campbell Scientific at CampbellSci.com. You can also view the full transcript from today's episode in the podcast description. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on We Measure the World.